Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. This is my favorite time of the service, by the way, because we're about to jump into God's Word. Somebody get excited. All right. So we're continuing to go through a book of the Bible called 1 Peter. We're in a series uh, called Spiritual Grit. Today we find ourselves in chapter 3. So you want to find your spot. We're looking at verses 8 through 12. And again, I've, I've welcomed all of our uh, visitors this morning that are here in person, but I also want to welcome... Uh, all those that are joining online as well. We're so glad you have decided to worship with us and dig into God's word. Now, how many of you today would agree with me the world seems like it's going nuts? Is it just me or anytime you turn on the news channel, the world is losing it. They're going crazy, right? The culture that we find ourselves today, it's definitely not neutral. I think it's safe to say that. Seems like our society is just going crazy. And How do we live then in a world that has gone nuts? Because that's kind of what Peter's been talking about all the way up till now, or or really, and he'll continue to to hammer this home. How How do we live for heaven in a world going to hell? How do we live for heaven in a world that's going to hell? And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty encouraged to see that even during Peter's day, they thought the world was crazy. They thought the world was going nuts. A lot of times we think nobody's ever had it as bad as we have it, right? I grew up listening to my parents talk about the 60s. So whenever we, we would complain, or even now as an adult, and I say, man, the world is going crazy. Jesus has to be coming back soon. My parents will be like, well, you didn't live in the 60s. You know, the 60s were crazy. And then my grandparents, they lived in a crazy world too. Uh, my gra- Grandma and grandpa would tell me stories about during the World War II period and how they thought, man, Jesus has got to be coming back. How in the world do we continue to live with this kind of evil? And, and I'm so encouraged that even in Peter's day, every day they, they woke up and wondered, man, how much longer can we do this? When is God going to come back? And you guys have to remember that, that in the first century to whom Peter's writing is a group that's under the leadership of ancient Roman Empire and in so many ways similar to America today and in many ways different but similar in the sense that they had the biggest economy, the biggest military, the biggest global impact and they were experiencing craziness when it came to politics, race, economy. They had all kinds of things going on in their society that were leading to all kinds of different uh, destructive behavior. Very similar of what we see today, right? I mean, we're experiencing craziness all the time. The economy is, will be strong one day, and then it'll be weak the next. We're still battling racism. It still exists. It's still something we see every day. And don't even get me started on politics. We live in a crazy world. <laughs> so I think this book is powerful for us today living in America, so much that we can apply to our life and our current situation. So what I want to do today, it's a little different because I'm going to read the passage right from the get-go. We're going to read the whole thing, and then I want to unpack it a little bit, okay? So if you have your Bibles, we're in chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 8, verses 8 through 12. Read with me, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Father God, we come to you right now acknowledging and recognizing that the Bible is the ultimate authority. It's your word spoken to us. And so today, I pray that you would do what only you can do and send your Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us so that we can apply it. Not not about me today. This is about you. And I pray that you would bless me and anoint me to teach your word the best that I can. But God, I pray that you would just speak to the hearts of all those that are going to hear your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm going to do it a little different. I'm going to look at verse 10. So just leave it up there. Will you go back to verse 10 if you can? Because I want to just focus for a little bit on a little phrase in there that I want you to see. It says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. This is really the, the thrust of this, this passage. So Peter's going to focus on this. He's actually quoting from his Bible. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the book of Psalms 34, and uh, where it says, again, Who, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. So and, and he quotes, he, he starts it out by saying um, to e- everyone, and I mean, think about this. I love this passage because a lot of, a lot of preachers today, they want to focus on stuff like this. On the topics that we get to preach on today, they'll focus a lot on this, and sometimes they'll forget the rest. And if you're new here to New Heights, we're not afraid to preach the Bible. That's why we do it verse by verse. And we've covered all kinds of difficult topics, but the Word of God is good, and we do it because we want to see your life blessed. And so now we're coming to this passage where he's going to talk about how to live the good life. He's going to, this is all about living a blessed life. Isn't that amazing? All right, God's word spoken to us is going to talk about living the good life. Peter's addressing the subject of living and loving, not just living, but loving the good life. Like I said, he's quoting from his Bible. He's quoting from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. And who doesn't want to love life and see good days? Who doesn't want that? That's why so many people will say, hey, have a good day. Right? You go to McDonald's, here you go, have a good day, right? The assumption is that everybody wants to have a good day, not just one good day, but a lot of good days, right? (laughs) I think it's safe to say that it's the desire of everyone. I think everyone wants to love life. I think everybody would like to see good days. The question is this, are you loving life and are you seeing good days? Are you loving life and seeing good days? The Italians used to talk about la, la dolce vita, the sweet life. My Italian's not very good, but the sweet life. In our society, it's this, the pursuit of living and loving the good life. And for most people, that means chasing things, chasing objects. And those objects can vary from people to cars, houses, money. The good life, they think, can be obtained through entertainment, money, vacation homes, sex, drugs, whatever. I mean, everybody is chasing and pursuing the good life. Here's the the sad reality is that that's really not the good life. You don't necessarily love life like that. You don't see good days because that kind of approach is all about a moment's pleasure, maybe a high, a rush, and it falls short of this, this lasting love of life that God or Peter's talking about in this passage. I think it's interesting that there are, there are people in the Bible who didn't really seem to love life. In fact, take, take Solomon, for example. He had everything you could think that would make a person happy. He was a multimillionaire. He had all kinds of things. If you look at what he said in the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see that, that he goes over all the stuff that he had. And man, it was a whole lot of stuff. He had everything. You would think all of that would cause a person to be happy. And yet, in the midst of all of it, Solomon said this, I hated life. I hated life, he said. I hated life because everything is futility and striving after wind. Words spoken from someone who had everything. If he had been living in our day, he would have had houses, villas, ranches. He would have had all kinds of cars, a huge bank account, lots of investments, women, all of the things that people pursue today that they think are going to make them happy. And yet he said, I hated life. How about 
a more modern personality. Everybody knows the story of Ernest Hemingway, right? He was very gifted, very talented in many ways, and we can appreciate him for that. But what really made him famous was his approach to life. Man, he pursued the good life with vengeance. He loved pursuing the good life. In fact, biographers will tell us that he had little regard for the Bible. He had little regard for morality, little regard for any definition of sin that would affect his lifestyle. He pursued the good life, the love of life. He lived life the way he wanted to live. He had power. He was famous. He was loved by every, everyone wherever he went, and he passionately pursued the pleasures of life. And in the end, did he love life? Well, in the end, he took his own life, put a gun to his head and took his own life. Listen, I was looking in this and, and I was just looking at different quotes on life and different approaches to life, uh, out, even outside of Christianity, because we're going to hit up how God views life. But listen to some of these people who don't know Jesus as their Savior, who don't have that perspective. Listen to some of these quotes I found. Life is a disease for which the only cure is death. That is just a, pes- that's a pessimistic attitude. Or how about this one? Earth is like a gigantic flywheel making 10,000 revolutions a minute. Man is a sick fly taking a dizzy ride on it. Or how about this one? From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we, th- we thank with brief thanksgiving whatever gods may be that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never. What a sad approach to life. I want more. <laughs> How about this next one? It's from a song that was popular at one time. He says, living is what you do while you're waiting to die. Let me tell you something today. I think there are people that feel that way in life because they're looking for life in all the wrong places. In all the wrong places. Now, I'm talking to a group of people today, and hopefully all of you would agree with me with what I'm about to say, and that's this. If you really want the good life, then you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When you know Jesus, you get eternal life. You're going to heaven when you die, but that's not all. Jesus also said, I have come that they might have life here and now and have it more abundantly. Okay? You can love life and see good days if you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Really, there are three basic ways to live life. I think anybody would agree with this. Number one, you can just endure it. You can endure life. There are people who just endure life. They just try to get through it. They don't love it. They just endure it. Number two, there are others who try to escape life. Life is just too painful for them. They try to escape life through alcohol or through drugs or some, some even through suicide. Some just try to escape life. Or, or number three... There are those, and I hope you're one of the, these, who enjoy life. Just like in verse 10, it says, whoever desires. Did you notice the word desires? Whoever desires to love life. What he's saying is that loving life and seeing good days is a choice. A choice that you can make. Today is a good day. Today is a fun passage to talk about because we're talking about loving life and having good days. And it's attainable for you if you choose to do so. We're not talking about, and I want to be real clear, I'm not talking about how to become rich today. I'm not talking about how to become famous. I'm not talking about how life is going to be perfectly smooth for you. I'm going to be talking about how to have a blessed life. And again, blessed doesn't mean we don't have bad days. Please, please understand, you can live a blessed life and you can still have bad days. I have bad days, trust me. I have loved and served Jesus all my life. I am blessed and I have bad days. Okay, there are days that I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, all right? The day I buried my father was a bad day. It was a bad day. The day the doctor told us he has a brain tumor and has nine years to live, that was a bad day. The day I had to do a funeral for a three-year-old, that was a bad day. Okay, we have bad days as Christians. We can't escape that. Just because we say yes to Jesus doesn't mean we won't experience problems in life. Doesn't mean we won't experience uh, drama. However, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your worst day as a Christian is better than your best day was when you were living for the devil. And I'll say that one more day. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your worst day as a believer is better than your best day when you were living for the devil. 
Peter is about to get real straightforward with us, give us some direct and practical insight into how to love life and see good days. And I want you to look at verse 10. I think it's still up there. All right, it is. Verse 10, you look at that word life. Look at that for a minute. The word here is zoe. Now, there are, there are and if you're a Greek expert, my pronunciation is terrible, but I'm going to get the point across, okay? Look at the word life, zoe, all right? There are two words in the Greek for life. One is zoe, one is bios. Bios is from which we get, get biolo- biology. It simply means the stuff of life, living as opposed to dying, being alive as opposed to being dead. The technical reality of being alive. That's bios, the biological life. But Zoe means not just life as opposed to death, but all the experience and the richness of really living, all that is the fullness of life. And that's the word that he uses here. Those who mean to love, not the biological reality that they exist, but who love all the potential goodness and the fulfillment that life contains. That's what he means here. Who doesn't want that, right? Who doesn't want that? Today we're going to read these verses, and they're all centered around verse 10, and we're going to discover that a great deal of loving life, listen to me, a great deal of loving life and seeing good days has to do with relationships. Isn't that amazing? We were designed for community. We were designed to do life together. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say, I don't need the church. Yes, you do. That's, you were designed for the church. You were, this is how you were created. This intelligent design here. <laughs> we were born for this. Do you understand that? We were created for community. And of course, the first relationship, the ultimate relationship, the primary relationship is your relationship to God, your creator. And Peter's been talking about three major areas up to this point of social interaction. He's talked about our relationship to the government, to the workplace, and within our marriage. Our relationship to our government leaders, our employer, and in the home, husbands and wives. He says the general role for all of us in all of those roles can be summed up by one word. Do you remember what it is? Submission. Not our favorite word, but... (laughs) Submit to authority, employees submit to bosses, wives submit to their husbands. Now Peter takes us to a fourth area of social interaction. And this is is meant for the Christian believer. Guess what? Our relationship with each other within this building right here, within the church. And I've heard this. I've I've heard so many different people will, will go to church like it's a fast food restaurant. They're looking for to have it their way. We ain't Burger King. And I would say this even if I wasn't a pastor. I probably see it more as a pastor because I'm the one who sits in the office and has to hear about so many people deciding to come and go. And just so you know, even when people come into the church from another church, I want to know why they're coming. Because so many people are looking for a perfect church, perfect pastor, perfect leadership, perfect people. Well, look at around us right now in this, in this auditorium. We're surrounded by... Uh, followers of Jesus Christ, and guess what? We're not perfect. We're not perfect, okay? You'll never find a perfect church if you, use, if you ever use the bathroom because the moment you look in the mirror, you'll realize that the church isn't perfect. That's for me, too. Just <laughs> sounded way more harsh when I said it. It didn't sound as harsh when I typed it. So that's to me, too. That's to anybody, Okay? <laughs> We're, we're imperfect people. Now, as believers, we live in a society. We have jobs. We have marriages. But we also have a family of believers. We're family. When we put our faith in Jesus. That makes us brothers and sisters. And that's what Peter's talking about when he says, finally, all of you, in verse 8. He's writing to Christian believers who interact with each other. And what Peter's going to do for us is tell us in order to have a blessed life, we need to cultivate three habits in our, in our relationships laid out in the text. Are you ready? Number one is this, right attitude. You need the right attitude. This is in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It's the right attitude, okay? 
Number one, you have to have the right attitude. Do you see this? Do you see that? Not what you possess. It's not about what you possess. It isn't the absence of problems. It's the attitude that you bring to life. That's where it starts. And the first thing he says is unity of mind. Some of you today might think that this means we have to agree about everything. That's like-minded, right? You're thinking, okay, if we're going to have unity of mind, if we're going to be like-minded, we've got to agree with everything that's said. This is the way I think, and so you should think this way too. Nope, that's not what it means. That's not unity of mind. That's just uniformity. The Bible never calls us to that. There are differences of opinions that we're going to have, right? Believers won't always agree on things. I know some amazing believers that have different views when it comes to politics than I do. It's real quiet. <laughs> Man, if we started talking today about politics or clothes style or, or style of worship, trust me, we're going to get all kinds of different opinions, Right? I've served in some countries as missionaries where the locals have a very different opinion than I do on what's appropriate clothing and what's not. Okay, I've been to churches before where the pastors don't like women to wear pants. I've been to churches before where women are required to wear head coverings. Okay, I've been to churches before where what I'm wearing right now would not be appropriate. They would have a different opinion on it. I need to be in a suit and tie. Okay, so I've been to so many different churches that, that have different opinions. I have some Christian brothers and sisters that watch certain movies that I, I don't watch. I wouldn't watch. And I watch certain movies that maybe they wouldn't watch. Okay? How about music? I still remember as a little kid, I, I brought one of my cassette tapes to uh, Sunday school. And, you know, I can't, I can't tease my son, my six-year-old, too much. I like to tease Liam from the pulpit sometimes and tell stories. Right now he's on this Elvis Presley kick. But my mom so graciously reminded me that he is a, uh, a mini-me and that I did the same thing. It just wasn't Elvis, it was Peter Cetera. So I, I still remember when I was little, I brought my Peter Cetera. You know Chicago, one of the greatest bands of all time? You could have a different opinion. You're, you're wrong, but... <laughs> Peter Cetera, I remember bringing this cassette tape uh, to Sunday school, and I remember one of the students said, you're demonic. You listen to secular music. And uh, I was listening to Peter Cetera's song, Apple of My Daddy's Eye, you know, a song he wrote about his daughter. But people have different opinions, right? I've heard the quote before, if two people agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. We don't have to agree on everything to have unity of the mind, okay? We have examples in the Bible of believers not agreeing on non-essentials, right? We, Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement so much that they decided to part ways. Not that they weren't unified, but they decided to, to go their own separate ways. And it was all concerning John Mark, whether John Mark should uh, go on one of their ministry trips with them or not, okay? They both disagreed. They had different opinions, we won't always agree on things, okay? That's just, that's it. But you know what Jesus prayed? You know what he prayed? He said, Lord, Father, that they may be one, even as you and I are one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what are the things that we need to be like-minded? What, what are the things, uh, what are the, we, we've talked about non-essential, style of worship, style of clothing, politics, different things like that. Those are non-essentials. But what, are, what is Peter saying that, hey, this is essential. You've got to agree on this. You've got to be like-minded. Well, let me tell you, the deity of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Trinity, the work of Christ, that he is God in human flesh, that he came to this earth, that he took our place dying on a cross, that he rose physically from the dead, and that he's coming again. Those are core issues that you've got to believe in to even be Christian, and we're, we need to all be one-minded with those issues. We have to be one-minded when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Right? We can, we can get over ourselves. We can sometimes sit in a worship service. If the style's not our style, it may be not be our preference, and we can still be one-minded, right? United in mind, or united. Man, I'm tired. I'm going on vacation today after church, okay? <laughs> I'm already at the beach. No, I'm not. Those are the things we need to be 
be together on, right? The essentials, that's it. Non-essentials where they're non-essential issues. Okay, so we are of one mind when it comes to the gospel. Next one on the list is this, sympathy. Okay, the Greek word here, uh, sympathes, means compassion, to actually feel with others. It literally means feel the same thing. Comes down to two different words. Pathos, which means to feel, or it means to have an emotion or to hurt, and then sum, which means to feel together. So feel the same thing. Peter says, have unity of mind, and then he says this, feel the same things. Think the same things, feel the same things. We need to share in the joys and the sorrows that people experience. Isn't that something that he calls us to do that? That when one of our brothers or sisters is hurting, God is calling us to hurt as well, to feel their hurt and their pain. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, I know the context here is, is those within the church, but this can relate to the way, the way we have sympathy towards the world as well. Think about it. In fact, one Scottish writer put it this way, Moses, the greater man than Aaron, was not called to be high priest. Why? Because he had grown up in the palace. He had never felt the lash of the taskmaster, the blast of the brick kilns, the raw fingered agony of unrequited toil. He couldn't be touched with the feeling of their infirmities, but Aaron could. He was there. Now, we may pity from above, he says, but we can only sympathize from beside. I have seen this with people in the church. The believers who are, are first-generation Christians, the ones who have come to Jesus from a broken life of sin, they're the ones who can sympathize the most with lost people. I've seen this in the church. Whereas the second, third, fourth, and fifth-generation Christians have been the product of this, an increasing indifference to a world they maybe don't even understand. But man, when you, when you are coming from a lost life, you can sympathize with lost people. I grew up, I told you, fifth generation Assemblies of God minister, but my dad did not always serve the Lord. He walked away from God in his early years, from like 15 to, I think he gave his heart back to the Lord in his 30s. And man, he really went off course. Really got into things he shouldn't have and was living selfishly and living for himself. And my mom, who bless her heart, was a brand new Christian. She got saved in the youth group and she even asked the youth pastor, which was my, one of my great, my uncles, she said, I want to marry a Christian. And he says, well, my nephew's a Christian. <laughs> Should have got to know my dad a little better. He would have realized he's not really serving the Lord. So they married and my mom didn't know any better. He's a pastor's kid. He says he's a Christian. And then as soon as they got married, she realized, wow, he's not really living for the Lord. And so she became one of those wives that just constantly prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. It was one Easter Sunday in his police uniform where he was on duty, but he promised uh, my mom he would come to the service, got up from that his chair, went to the altar, accepted Jesus as his savior, and his life was different from that moment on. But my dad always always could sympathize with lost people because he had been there. He was a broken, lost person stuck in sin. And when he had experienced grace and freedom, he could relate and sympathize with those that didn't know God. The next is brotherly love. Now, a better translation would be love one another as brothers should, okay? So the proof that you and I are saved, we love our brother and sister in Jesus. How on earth can you and again, I know it's within the context of the church, but we're also called to love the unbeliever. How can you love an unbeliever you can't even love a brother or sister? How in the world, because God tells us to go love the world, to go to preach the gospel. How can you love somebody out there if you can't love somebody in here? And that's, it's a legit question. How are you going to do that? How are you going to love somebody who doesn't give a whoop about you if you can't even love your brother or sister? 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does, not whoever does not love abides in death. Man, powerful passage, scary too. He's called us to love each other. And notice there's no, it's not conditional. It's not like you get to love somebody within the church because you care about all the same things. And it doesn't say you get to love somebody in the church because this whole context is we're going to jump into verse 9 here in a minute and learn that actually people in the church do messed up things too and they can actually hurt you too. And then you're called to love them. 
And it's not a matter of if they've asked you for forgiveness. That's, not, that's never laid out in the Bible. Jesus just tells you to love them. And we don't hear this a lot, right? We harp on all the big sins in society. There's certain ones on our list that we know that's no-no, that's bad, and we'll harp on those. And Jesus talks about this all the time, yet we don't address it very often in the church, do we? You're supposed to love each other. You're supposed to treat each other good. You're supposed to forgive each other. You're supposed to walk in grace and mercy because God has been gracious and merciful to you. He moves on to a tender heart. This is one of my favorite Greek words to translate. Because the original word uh, is called splachnos, I think I'm saying it right. Literally meaning having good bowels. (laughs) Intestines, kidneys, or guts. Because that's where the deepest emotions were believed to have resided. So that's what it means. Peter's telling us to have good bowels. We can talk about that in church. It's in the Bible. You heard me. Have good bowels. That's what it says. And here's why it says that. Because like I said, in those days, it was believed that the deepest emotions that a person feels is in the intestinal region. Now, think about it. We kind of talk this way still. There are times where I'll be in a meeting, and at the end of the meeting, one of my colleagues will say, what's your gut feeling? Right? What's your gut feeling? Well, I felt my gut. Liz will say it sometimes. I felt my gut. I don't think you should uh, trust this person. Of uh, Maybe a salesperson's talking. Yeah. I remember, and I remember feeling things. We, talk, we call it butterflies in our stomach. But do you remember, I, I still remember as a little boy, any time that I would perform in sports or one of my wrestling meets, I would always have butterflies in my stomach. And believe it or not, did you know every Saturday night, Knowing I have to preach the next day, I still get butterflies, and sometimes so much that I'll even throw up on a Saturday night. A lot of people don't believe me. They say, oh, no, you don't get nervous. I do. I get butterflies in my stomach every single Saturday night knowing I got to go preach the next morning. So we, we feel it. The deepest emotional feelings we'll have right here in our stomach. Now, here's what Peter's saying. When we see the needs of people around us, we should feel it right here. Think about that. I heard heard someone say a number of years ago something that I've thought a lot about. He said that we need to do is develop a hide as tough as a rhino and a heart as tender as a baby. And the trick is how to toughen the one without toughening the other. We need to feel the pain that our brothers and sisters are going through. We need to feel it. He goes on and says we need a humble mind. Now this goes against culture. The world believes that if you're humble, you're weak. You're humble, you're weak. They believe the same thing when Peter wrote this, just so you know. The Greeks loved qualities like self-confidence, self-assertiveness. And I can't tell you how many times I, I've been told and coached, be assertive. And, and we're, we're taught in our society that to be humble is to be weak, right? F.B. Meyer once said this, I used to think that God's gifts were on the shelves, one above the other, and the taller you grow in the Christian grace, the more easily you could take them. I have now come to realize that God's gifts are on shelves, one below the other, and it's not a matter of growing taller, but of stooping lower. Being humble. But it's also more than just being a servant. There's more to this than just being a servant. Now, definitely that is entailed in here. Peter's telling you, you, you better be a servant. There, there should be nothing that you're not willing to do. I should be willing to go clean the bathrooms if I need to clean the bathroom. I should go. I, we were here for a graduation, and I remember uh, I walked into the atrium. Somebody said, hey, the, the bathroom toilet is clogged. And somebody said, that's the lead pastor. Well, I, gra- I said, and I should be willing to serve. I was more than happy to go. Well, I wasn't happy. <laughs> I had to put on a mask because it was bad. But we went and fixed the toilet. We, we should be humble servants. We should be willing to serve. But it's more than that. It involves the feeling that we're utterly dependent on God for life and breath and intelligence and emotional stability and faith and safety and the use of our senses the feeling of being fragile and vulnerable in ourselves, the realization that we're sinful, we're unworthy as we look at ourselves apart from the free grace of God. Being humble-minded is always, always remembering what Christ has done for us. That will keep you humble. Okay? Being humble-minded is always remembering what Jesus has done. Okay? So that's the right attitude of the believer. 
Then Peter moves to a right perspective in verse 9. A right perspective. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Can I just say, this is one of those passages that just rubs me the wrong way. I wish I could omit this from the Bible. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I struggle with this verse. Peter's telling us we've got to bless those that are horrible to us. <laughs> I hate that because it's not my nature. I don't want to do that. Peter says, no matter how you're treated, don't retaliate. What's the first thing we learn? Go in the nursery downstairs and, and, and really do. Sign up. I'm not kidding. Sign up for the nursery because we would love more workers. But go down there in just one week, you'll see. We are, are born and raised to retaliate. You take my toy, I'm going to take it back. You hit me, I'm going to hit you harder. You push me, I'm going to push harder. Even in a Christian home, I remember uh, I got in trouble and I think it was first grade because somebody pushed me and I pushed back. And I remember they called mom and dad to the, uh, the principal's office and I remember my dad saying, well, he was pushed. And the moment my princ the principal walked out of the office, my, wi my, my wife, I didn't have a wife in the first grade, <laughs> my mom looked at my dad and said, well, He's supposed to turn the other cheek, not push back. Come on, Pastor Jim. <laughs> but we do it, don't we? It's our nature. He's saying, look, you might be persecuted. You might even be rejected. You might be troubled, mistreated, lied about. You might be going through all kinds of stuff. you got to remember the Christians that Peter was writing to, they were being rejected, persecuted, ostracized. And he says, the right response is this, don't retaliate. That sums up all of verse 9. No retaliation, no retaliation, abstinence from revenge. Don't seek vengeance. Do not retaliate. Simply said, we don't repay evil for evil. And I want you to notice that this is a, pre this is a present participle. But it's used as an imperative in a command mode. And it could even be translated this. Stop returning evil for evil. Don't do that. And if you're doing it, stop. Stop. And the word evil here is kakos, another one of my favorite Greek words. <laughs> Means a bad quality or a bad disposition. It's not just a bad act. It's the badness, the, in, the inherent badness. When you've been treated with ingrained badness by somebody, when you're treated by someone who has a bad or evil or wicked disposition, when somebody does evil to you or has a bad disposition towards you, don't retaliate. Don't do it, he says. Now, this is why this is hard for me. This is really a difficult passage. I'll be the first to tell you that your pastor, when somebody says something bad about me, I get mad. I get angry, especially when somebody doesn't know all the details concerning the situa situation or the circumstance. I get bad. I feel like God has tested me in this area more being a pastor because in some ways we live in a fishbowl, right? So I've never been in a position where everything I do gets, gets judged. Or, and I, I get mad. I get really, really, really mad. I, it's just human nature. Like I said, you hit me, I'm going to hit you harder. That's what human nature is, right? And here I hate it because Peter's saying, don't do it. Don't you dare do it. Somebody says something bad about you, you don't retaliate by saying something bad. I was the one kid that when my dad said, don't you dare say a peep, I would say, peep. <laughs> that was me. Do you know how many times I got a spanking for saying peep? I was the one kid, and I would even think in my mind when my dad would break up a fight between me and my brother, and he would say, no more words. Well, it drove me nuts that before he said that, my brother got the last word. So I would sit there and contemplate, is it worth a spanking? And there were times, many times in my childhood that I said, yep, it's worth a spanking. I'm going to say it. So I would say something, and I would get the spanking. And it would be just a sick, vicious cycle. I was that one that always wanted to retaliate. I find this really crazy because of the guy who's writing it. I can relate to Peter so much. Because of the Gospels, we get a glimpse into Peter's life, and we have to remember it's Peter who's writing this. Peter tried to fight evil with evil. 
he did try to fight back. Remember the time when Jesus and his disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane and they came to arrest Jesus? The Roman soldiers come, and what does Peter do? He fights back. He took out a sword. He saw, he saw the servant of the high priest, and he took a swing. And thank God he wasn't a swordsman. He was a fisherman. He was going for his head. He missed and got his ear. And do you remember what Jesus said? Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know that those who live by the sword will what? They will die by the sword. Jesus told Peter, this isn't how you fight your battles. We fight our battles different. I love this because Peter has changed. That's called the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter was somebody who did fight back. He was somebody who grabbed the sword and was ready to take a swing. But the Holy Spirit got a hold of his heart and changed him. And Peter's saying this from his own experience. He's saying, look, I have learned how to fight my battles. And it's not the way the world does. You don't return evil for evil, but instead you return evil with blessing. This is the call of someone who follows Jesus. And in doing so, we inherit a blessing. Do you know that's what separates Christianity from every other belief system that we, we love our enemies. It's what separates us from every other belief system in God. We love our enemies. It goes against all human logic, but it's what Jesus has called us to do. Even, even did you know that the Jews in the Old Testament had what was known as the lex uh, talionis? It's the law that says if the punishment fits the crime. You guys know it. We see it in Exodus 21. We see a life for a life, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. Okay? And most of the time, we misinterpret it. We, we don't read it correctly, and we, we don't apply it correctly. But did you know why that was given? To limit vengeance. Because human nature always is going to want more than just an eye or a tooth or a foot. You took one of my eyes, I'm going to make you blind. You took one of my, one of my feet, I'm going to put you in a wheelchair. That's human nature. We've been talking about this. It's human nature to want to fight back. It's not in our nature to sit back and let somebody run their mouth about us. Or to do something evil to us and sit back and think, man, how can I bless that person? That's not our nature. That's why God had to create that, that law to limit what was given. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb. But now it's this? I mean, to bless somebody who's doing that to us? Are you kidding me? I struggle with it. I'm more like Peter. Give me the sword. Best way to do this, I want you to know, because some of you are hearing this and saying it's po impossible. I would probably agree with you apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. I would agree with you. This is, this is absolutely impossible. There are times in my life where I have to pray for somebody who I am so mad and angry with. When they have done something to me and continue to do something to me, it's hurting me and it's hurting my family, maybe even hurting the church, and I have to get on my knees and pray for them. But I'm going to tell you something. There's power in prayer, and if you pray for somebody long enough, the Holy Spirit will start to do something in your heart. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Surrender it to God. I promise you. Try it. I promise you you'll be in, impressed with what the Holy Spirit can do in your life. But the best part of this verse is that, that it leads to a blessing. We will be blessed when we bless. Instead of doing what we feel like doing, we need a bless, and in the end, we will be blessed. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 through 12, and Peter was there, by the way, when Jesus taught this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Man, so this is what Peter's saying. We are called to cultivate the right attitude, the right perspective. And now he moves on in verse 10. Peter's going to end up telling us to cultivate a right motivation. The right motivation. Look with me, verse 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He's building upon verse 9. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. You notice that peace doesn't come find you. He says, let him seek peace and pursue it. The word for seek there, it's a hunting term. How many... How many of you guys are hunters? 
I like to call myself a hunter. I only have two deers after 10 years of hunting, but here's what I've learned. The deer don't come to me. I have to seek and pursue them. Now, I'm learning this whole Midwest thing where I sit in the tree stand, and I literally do wait for them to come. But Ohio does it right. They put out feeders. You can't do that in Missouri. You'll get in trouble. So it's kind of like you're, but you got to go seek and pursue it, right? I mean, there's a reason that my father and I were terrible hunters. My dad hunted for over 30 years, never got a, a deer. And that's because he was drinking Pepsi, snapping the cans. He was eating Doritos, talking about the Sonics the night before. He was a horrible hunter. He didn't know how to go seek and pursue the deer. He just had a good old time. And, man, don't go hunting with my family because if they heard anything, all of them would swing around, start shooting. It was just... (laughs) They should never allow Hansons to go out and hunt. I have changed, Dave. You've trained me well. I'm stuck in a tree stand up in Ohio. But it's interesting. Peace, peace, you've got to seek and pursue. It ain't going to come find you. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Three reasons this motivates us to live this way. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What does that mean? Well, his watchful care. I want God watching over me. Don't you? I want God taking care of me. I want him to keep an eye on me. I need his provincial care. I I look at my life and I see how good God has been to me. I have been blessed. I am fortunate. I was born in a Christian home and I have never wandered away from the truth. I have accepted Jesus as a little boy and I have followed him all of my life and I have lived a blessed life. I live a blessed life. Man, I pastor the greatest church with the greatest people. I serve with some of the greatest pastors. I have the most incredible board. I have a beautiful house, a beautiful wife, three beautiful kids. I'm not saying I don't have hard days, but I am blessed. The watchful eye of the Lord is on my life. He's watching out for me. The God who created this universe watches over me. And it's not like he's watching because he's waiting for me when I make a mistake, he's gonna bring down the hammer. No, it's more like, it's not like the recess teacher. She watched me all the time. It was the kind of watching I don't want. The kind of watching that this is talking about is like my brother who watched out for me. You know, my dad would say, watch out for Justin. Look out for Justin. I was always small for my age. I had a big mouth, which got me in a lot of trouble. And every day I remember, my dad thinks I couldn't hear it, but I could. He'd grab Jordan, watch out for your little brother. Don't let him get in trouble. Watch out for him. He'd watch out for me says that's what this is talking about God is watching over my life don't you want God watching over yours I want God's continued blessing in my life so I need to cultivate right attitudes right perspectives and I need to seek his blessing verse 12 ears of the Lord look at this and his ears are open to their prayer underline eyes of the Lord and ears open to prayer What does that mean? Well, God's going to hear your prayers, and then God can answer your prayers. Did you know that God is not obligated to answer your prayers if you're not walking in obedience to Him? He's not obligated to, to answer your prayers. If you're not walking in humility and caring for others, if you don't have sympathy and compassion and humility, if you do those things, then God will watch over you and His ears will be bent towards you. Again, God's not your Santa Claus. I'm not teaching that can ask him for anything. God is sovereign and all things work together for the good of those who love Jesus. He knows what you need best, but I want God's ears open to me. Amen. Verse 12, the face of the Lord, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now I mentioned earlier that beginning there in verse 10, all the way to verse 12, Peter's quoting from Psalms 34, 12 through 16, word for word. And the idea is that if we live biblically, scripturally according to God's word. Did you know that in five chapters that Peter wrote, he quotes scripture 35 times. 35 times he quotes scripture. You think he's trying to tell us something? That God will bless us, that his eye will watch over us, that his ear will hear us, that his face will not be against us. But then when it comes to verse 12, Peter omits a portion of of Psalms 34. He doesn't doesn't quote 16. 
Psalms 34, 16 says to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. He doesn't quote that part in this. The face of the Lord is against them who do evil, to cut off them and their remembrance from the earth. Why does Peter do that? Why doesn't he quote that part? Well, because we live in the dispensation of the age of grace. There's mercy for those who come and call out to God. But if you harden your heart, you resist God, you refuse to submit to the Lord, you refuse to follow Jesus Christ, then the face of the Lord is against you. What does that mean? You will face his judgment. You have his displeasure. We don't talk about this a lot, do we? But the truth is we can experience his wrath. You know, when you die, only two places you can go, heaven or hell. I know just to say the word hell makes everybody mad today. Everybody gets upset. They don't like it. But you know who talked about hell more than anybody else? Jesus. Jesus did. Some people try to avoid the idea of hell, and they'll even say things like, well, that was the Old Testament God. You know. And then there's the New Testament with Jesus. He was meek and mild, and he's all about love and compassion. Uh, he, he, he grew up, and he wasn't as immature as he was in the Old Testament problem with that is that when you start reading the Gospels, you find that Jesus speaks about hell more than anybody else. In fact, if you count up the verses that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did, or if you count up the verses, you would see he talks more about hell than he does about heaven. Why? Why why does Jesus speak so much about hell more than anybody else in the Bible? Because he wanted everybody to understand what he had to go through, what he had to endure on the cross on our behalf for you and for me. On the cross, his punishment was, people don't get you, we don't understand it by watching a movie or seeing a play or even reading about it. What he went through was literal hell. He had to use an old recycle, used cross history tells us most likely it was covered in the blood, feces, and urine of the other men who had died on it. Jesus had to carry that up, go through excruciating pain. But here's the worst part. As he hung there in immense pain and he slowly suffocated to death, that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was the separation from the Father that Jesus felt, a separation that was hell itself. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in all of this, Jesus was taking the hell of our sin into his body. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. And people often feel that hell is some great blemish on God's love. That's what I hear more and more. And I see more and more mainline preachers walking away from it. They just can't believe that there's, there's a hell. But the Bible presents it as the opposite. Hell magnifies for us the love of God by showing us how far God went and how much he went through to save us. It's a real place and he doesn't want you to go there. That's why he came from heaven to earth and died on a cross so that you can go from earth to heaven. Man, concerning hell, C.S. Lewis once wrote this, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. Man, I'll tell you what, I agree with him in so many ways. Nobody should like the idea of hell. It's a difficult reality, but it's something that the Bible teaches and we can't fully understand God and his word unless we grapple with it. We may be tempted to get all upset at God and to correct him, but how can we find fault with God? Paul says in Romans, who are we as mere lumps of clay to answer back to the divine potter? We need to realize this. We're not more merciful than God. Okay, Isaiah reminds us that all who right now are incest against God, they'll come before him in the last day and they'll be ashamed. They won't be vindicated, they'll be ashamed because they will then realize just how perfect God's ways are. Every time God is compared with a human counterpart in scripture, God is the more merciful of of the pair. Every single time. When we look back on our lives from eternity, what will amaze us is not the severity of his justice, but the magnitude of his mercy and his grace. God wants to give us everlasting life. And it's not just quantity, guys, it's quality. The moment you give your life to God is the moment you're given eternal life. And the moment you're saved, you enter into the life of God. A 
Christian is a person who has the life of God in their soul. It's not going to church. It's not being religious. It's none of that. It's this relationship with a God who loves us in return. You will walk in submission and love and obedience to God. You will have a blessed life, an eternal life. If you harden your heart, you resist him, the face of the Lord will be against you. And one day you will stand before him in judgment and you will be separated from him for all of eternity. The Bible says today that if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The Bible says if you open your heart, Jesus will come in, forgive you and give you eternal life and he will give you the hope of heaven. But you have to open that door. You have to allow Christ to come in. All of us have sinned, the Bible says, all of us. No one righteous, no, not one, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. God wants to give you a free gift today, but you've got to receive it by faith. Let's pray. Father, I love your word. I love your word because it reminds me of your grace and your mercy. Grace and mercy that I don't deserve. And God, I am so thankful that I am saved and the devil cannot snatch me, that I am yours. I'm so thankful for that. I'm also thankful that you came to give me life here on earth, that every day I can love life and be blessed. Even with the difficulties and the hardships that I face, I can love life. God, I pray for all of those who are here today. If there is somebody who has never surrendered their life to Jesus, they've never truly given their life to him. They don't have to do anything except for say, God, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. I believe he is who he says he is. I believe he died on a cross for my sins and I believe he came back to life. All they have to do is say, I, I believe that. I put my faith and I promise to, to live for you. That's it. That's all it is. They don't have to raise their hand. They don't have to come up to the altar. They don't have to do anything special. They have to say that prayer to themselves. It's just talking to God. Now they're going to have to make a declaration that they have, are followers of you. That's all it is. It's just saying, I believe this. I accept this. I accept this grace and mercy. And God, for those today who are watching online or who are here in person who have never done that, I pray for them as they're making that decision, the best decision in their life that they will ever make to follow you. I pray that you would just fill their hearts with your joy and your peace right now as they surrender their life to you. The Holy Spirit would strengthen them and empower them to live the life that they're professing today. God, I pray for those in the church today. I, worship team's gonna come back up here. They're gonna lead us in worship as we close out. We're gonna open up our altars. This is something that I wanna do. I want our altars to be open so that we can respond because I believe that the Holy Spirit is doing something in our hearts. He's giving us a chance to respond to what he's doing in our hearts. I know our connection card, it seems... Uh, like it's out of place sometimes. You gotta understand our church believes in the power of prayer. When you make a decision, we get to pray for you and come alongside you. And that's why we do this connection card. So I would love it. There's two today that I wanna focus on. I'm gonna, one of them's I'm gonna begin to pray for someone who has hurt me deeply on a daily basis. I'm gonna pray for somebody on a daily basis, somebody who has hurt me. I'm gonna pray, I'm, I wanna pray with you. The last one is I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna physically do something for someone in need this week. God has placed so many different people in our life who need us to make a step of faith and do something in their lives. So that's you, we wanna pray with you. This is very spiritual. We, we want you to check this, hand it in. As you walk out, there's a place to hand these in, but I wanna open up this altar for anybody who just needs God. And it's not, the altar is not just for those that have accepted the invitation of salvation. It's not just for those that need, need to experience forgiveness and healing in their heart, although it's open for those. It's open for whatever God is leading you, leading you to do right now in your own life. Respond to the Holy Spirit. Our altars are open. We're gonna dismiss you here in a bit, but I'm gonna pray my blessing over you. Father, 
bless everybody here today. I love this church. I love these people. This is, this is our family, God, brothers and sisters. And God, we're not perfect, so we've done things that have hurt each other. There's probably people sitting in this sanctuary, and there's, they've probably done something that has hurt somebody else sitting in the sanctuary. But God, I pray that you would help us respond like you respond. God, that you would help us love one another, that you would help us be gracious and forgiving and in doing so we can find freedom. I pray this in Jesus' name.